1 Peter 1, where we read the second half of the chapter, verses 13 through 25. And then we'll respond to this reading of God's Word by singing Psalm 76, stanzas 2, 4, and 5. Here the word of the Lord speaks to us as follows, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but... The word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The text for the sermon of this afternoon is taken from the passage we read together in 1 Peter 1. The verses 17 through 21. I'd like to read those with you once again. 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 17. Where our text reads as follows, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God.
After we've listened to the word of the Lord this afternoon, we'll sing in response Psalm 19, stanzas 4 and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we today live in what you might call a how-to world. And here I'm not thinking so much of the self-improvement material produced by Dale Carnegie, how to enjoy your life and your job, or how to stop worrying and start living, or even how to win friends and influence people. I think instead of what happens within the church. A couple may no longer feel any romance in their relationship, and they'd like to know how to have that spark again. A depressed person wants to know how to get rid of his depression. A parent wants to know how to deal with a strong-willed child. And it's certainly true that Scripture provides insights on these and many more how-to questions. And it's certainly appropriate to apply Scripture to the details of our life. But what often happens is that we can study and we can talk about the how the principles in the Word of God apply to the ins and outs of our life, yet do all of this without actually talking much about God himself. In other words, it can and it does happen that the principles we derive from Scripture are not always embedded or located in the fear of the Lord. And that's regrettable. For the result is that our goal is, can be self-improvement, self-gratification, self-accomplishment, rather than the glorification of the Holy God. Well, last time, a couple weeks ago, we heard the Apostle Peter wrote his letter to instruct pilgrims on how to live faithfully in a pagan world. And then beginning with verse 13 of chapter 1, he starts to get very specific. He calls them to live holy lives as their heavenly God is holy. He exhorts them to be who God has established, recreated them to be. And now in our text, he further impresses upon them what it is to be holy by commanding them, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This fear, what really is it about? Now, without a doubt, this is one of the most important yet misunderstood concepts in the Bible. The fear of God obviously means to be afraid, but afraid of what and also why? When talking about the fear of God, we often like to qualify what we say. We try to soften its meaning, make it more palatable. Peter here does nothing of the sort. The apostle wants his readers in their daily lives not to think merely in terms of how to do this or how to survive in a, in a world overrun by paganism. It's far more than that. 
Peter wants his readers to take their God for real, to fear him in a way that the rest of the world doesn't. He wants us to know that nobody can be indifferent to the fear of the Lord. In today's culture, the fundamental reason for the spiritual decline of our continent, even in many churches, is that there is no longer any fear of God in men. That what prevails instead is self-styled religion outside the church as well as inside many a church. Well, then for our part, we need to make sure we understand as well as grow in the blessed fear of the Lord. So I bring you this word of the Lord this afternoon. Conduct your lives with the fear of the Lord throughout your earthly sojourn. And we'll look at two things. First, reasons for fearful living. Secondly, reasons for fearless living. So first, reasons for living in fear. But we need to get a handle then on what Peter means with his instruction to live out our lives with fear. Some will say, as you may know, that fearing God, trembling before him, is an outdated Old Testament teaching that really has no bearing any longer. They say that in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord is truly a matter of fear, even dread, which has now been changed to love. Now, we know that's not very helpful because it doesn't really do any kind of justice to the detail of Scripture. When we consider the scriptural picture of the fear of the Lord, we need to think in terms of attitudes. The scriptural picture consists of two attitudes. On the one hand, the fear of the Lord does mean a terror of him. Humanity is finite, limited, and impure, and we live before a God infinite, almighty, and pure in every which way. Fear, terror, is a natural response. This kind of fear wants to avoid God, and it is a fear from which no one Christian or non-Christian, is completely excluded. With non-Christians, it can be hard for us to identify their fear of God because, as we've already said, there is no longer fear of God in man. But it certainly is there when you see unbelievers desperately trying to make themselves the center of their universe. If you reject God, you have to, in a sense, work to a frenzy in order to establish your own roots, your own identity. Ultimately, that means there is no peace in your life. So no matter how much the unbeliever wants to deny God, the unbeliever just cannot avoid fearing God as he strives to run away from the living God who is fearful. 
for the Christian who has, by God's grace, come to a better understanding of God, this kind of fear, dread, terror is there at times. And that's good. For the Christian, this kind of fear is not something oppressive or burdensome. The Christian knows that eternal torture is not his destiny. Yet he should still have a degree of awareness that God is a frightening God. The author of the book of Hebrews confesses it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is a fearful God for the non-Christian, but also for the Christian. For the Christian, you might even go so far as to say that this gift, this fear, is a gift. It serves as part of our motivation to be reconciled with God, repentant before God. Now, what about the other part of the scriptural picture? Fear of the Lord also means reverent submission that leads to holiness, obedience. The fear of the Lord in this case is equivalent to, it's the same thing as godly piety, worship, trust. This is a fear that's exclusive to Christians. Fear, you see, is at the heart of true biblical faith. The book of Proverbs repeatedly describes the righteous as those who have the fear of the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 27. Chapter 14, verse 27. Psalm 147, verse 11 says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. So this part of the scriptural picture of the fear of the Lord is the fear of reverence, awe, devotion. So when the apostle now writes that we are to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile, he's calling us to a fear of reverence, awe. But let's not misunderstand this to mean that This aspect of the fear of the Lord has nothing in common, nothing to do with the other aspect of fear that we've just mentioned. Reverent fear includes being afraid of God. We know our sinfulness as well as God's moral purity. But this reverent fear also knows God's forgiveness, His grace and His love. It knows about Christ crucified and risen and the dawning of our new life in Him. And so this kind of fear doesn't drive us to flee from God, but toward Him. It drives us to submit in holy obedience and worship before Him. Yes, this fear lies at the very core of our faith. Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4 puts it so well. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. 
experiencing God increases the fear of God. And so we understand, I think, what Peter is saying. We understand why God can demand through the Apostle Peter that we fear the Lord, and at the same time, God can proclaim through the Apostle John, there is no fear in love. 1 John 4, verse 18. We're going to get more at that in our second point. But for now, Scripture teaches that God's children are no longer to be driven by terror that has to do with punishment. Instead, God's children are blessed with reverential fear motivated by God's love. Because of God's unspeakable love for us, you and I tremble at the privilege of being in His presence and tremble with intense longing to honor Him in His presence. We are fearful of grieving Him. Fearful living is the response of faith. It's how you are to live in covenant with God. Our text for this afternoon, brothers and sisters, helps us see this. Before Peter even commands in verse 17 to conduct yourselves with fear, he says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. What he means is this. Pilgrims who pray to the Father must know him to be at the same time their impartial judge. Verse 17 corrects a common misunderstanding that claims that God is either Father, patient, loving, or judge, just, law-abiding, but never both at the same time. It's not true. When we call God our Father because we are His children, we may expect Him to be our impartial judge as well. God actively responds in the present to the conduct of his people with blessing or with curse, judgment. So does it not make sense to us that in this context, Peter commands his readers to conduct their lives in reverent fear? Their father is yet their judge, and that's reason for holy reverential living, for taking God at his word. For yes, this God who judges is impartial. What does that mean? Well, we may never think of our status as God's children, that that makes us immune to God's discipline, even God's judgment. No, God is an impartial judge. He doesn't favor anyone, whether rich or poor, slave or master, Jew or Gentile, male or female. He doesn't show favoritism. God's standards never slacken. It's not the case that because you faithfully attended church all these years, that you've invested a lot of energy into church life, that he's going to use a lesser standard for you than the person next to you in the pew or for that matter, the unbeliever outside. No, he uses the same, exact same measuring rod 
to judge the work of his own children as he uses to judge the work of a pagan. He doesn't judge the actions of his own children with preferential treatment over the world, even though he does love us in a way he doesn't love the world. And so Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear. Show by your conduct that you know God for who he really is, for what he's done for you. Live in reverence before him, for he doesn't turn a blind eye to sin among his children. If God is a loving and a forgiving God, he is to be feared. That's the point of Scripture. Live your lives in reverent fear. I need to be absolutely clear here. This is not to be understood as the stick behind the door. As if salvation is actually really of works in the end and you always have to worry about where you actually stand with God. Perish the thought that's not a reason Peter's giving for fearful living. Rather, he wants us to reckon daily with the very God whose name we call upon daily. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has secured our redemption. And that's what lead, leads Peter to continue in verse 18. He wants to explain why it is that the Father judges each man's deeds impartially. He wants to tell us why he's so emphatic that we have to conduct ourselves in fear. The reason that the Father demands no less from us than of pagans. The reason the Father doesn't slacken his standards in our case is because of the price that was on our head and has been paid. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter contrasts the cost of our redemption with the cost of earthly things, created things, silver, gold. They're subject to change and decay. Earthly possessions do not, cannot qualify as payment to redeem sinners from an empty, useless, futile, and fruitless way of living. Now, a far greater price needed to be paid, and it was. We were bought with the precious blood of Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross. If that's the case, then what do you think? Little sin here and there, God's gonna overlook it. I'm his covenant child, he has to. Brothers and sisters, knowing how much our liberation cost God is a greater incentive to holy living and godly fear. If the satisfying of God's wrath for our deliverance required that Christ 
hang between heaven and earth as a forsaken wretch of a man, do you really now think that God's fine with, with us thinking, oh, I can live a little like the world and be excused? If the most valuable blood in heaven and on earth has been spilled for us in our sin, will God now wink at sin? Not a chance. May it never be that a sinner who inherited nothing but the futile ways from those who've gone before and has now received a priceless inheritance from Christ loses his fear of God. Brothers and sisters, God's word this afternoon gives us great reason not to take God's grace for granted, nor to count as insignificant the blood of the Lamb of God, but to live out our days in godly fear. Christ shed his blood so that we could live holy, God-fearing lives, so we cannot scorn the redemption we have in Christ, that perfect Lamb. We simply cannot think lightly about the call to daily repentance. Yes, we cannot live as if God really isn't paying a whole lot of attention. Instead, we are to live as pilgrims in godly fear of the Father. Fear of the Lord is learned by meditating upon the Word and by praying that God would teach us. Psalm 34, we heard it at the beginning of this worship service. David says, Oh, fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. We were freed up from an empty way of life to live a life of reverence before God. So let's understand well what it means to go on in fearful living before God. Let's seek after God to school us in the fear of Him. That's not easy. We know that. But if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, yes, is as important to our lives as Scripture says it is, that also means, brothers and sisters, that God himself will also empower you by his spirit to pursue a reverent, holy, godly fear. And in the process, he will also teach you never to lose sight of what you don't ever have to fear. That's our second point where we see reasons for fearless living. Well, are we speaking here in riddles? Brothers and sisters, are we supposed to walk away in confusion? I hope not. And I would say not at all. We are to have an awe and reverence for God, no question. And that's supposed to work itself out in our daily life. We don't take God for granted, but we stay close to his word, take him seriously, follow his commands. And the glorious truth that follows is that as we do this, we truly have nothing to fear. We can live fearlessly. 
Oswald Chambers, best known for his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, said it very well. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. He nailed it right on the head. When the Lord God is feared with proper awe and reverence, every other fear is destroyed. The fear of anything or anyone other than God is futile. As Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So how do we understand our text then? Verse 17, Peter instructs his readers to conduct themselves throughout the time of their exile with the fear of the Lord. The Father who judges each man's work impartially. And then in the final verses of our text, the Lord, the apostle gives assurance for those who live in awe and reverence before God. Those who dare not take lightly the shed blood of Christ need not fear God's vengeance on the day of judgment, for Christ came for them. Verses 20 and 21, he, that's Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The spotless Lamb of God, God destined for the altar. Before time began, Christ was destined for the cross and now in these last times has been revealed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ's suffering and death on the cross were not accidental, unexpected, unplanned, or some last-ditch alternative of God's to salvage a failed covenant relationship with Israel. Christ's suffering and death were planned from eternity. God the Father from eternity appointed His Son for the altar of His wrath to redeem sinners. And it's worth noting, brothers and sisters, in our present context, that this text underlines that it is Christ who is the very center of history. Kings and rulers and presidents and prime ministers and even premiers would come before him and after him, many of whom did not and do not have a right fear of God. But in Christ's coming, God's eternal pre-creation plan was realized. This is the king who was born, suffered, died, rose, and ascended. In him, in the Christ, God steers history. God steers his church toward his goal. His goal. Indeed. Peter writes some of the most spellbinding binding words at the end of verse 20. All of this work of God in Christ was and is for the sake 
of you. That, brothers and sisters, is a staggering thought. The Father's foreordination of Christ as the sacrificial lamb was for the sake of you. The manger, the cross, the empty tomb, and the throne, these were all for the sake of you. Peter assures his readers, and yes, us also, that God had the church's redemption from sin by Christ's blood in mind all along. And now we may live in the joy of that redemption. We may live fearless lives, fearless of the judgment that awaits because of two words for you. And so we, in the power of Christ, live to strive out, pardon me, strive to live out of this glorious truth. Peter emphasizes in verse 21 that believers must be wholly directed toward God, for that's the payoff. That's the reward for Christ's work. Through him, we've been brought near to God. Only through Christ can people come to faith and call upon God as the Father who judges. Our faith in God is the confession that God raised Christ from the dead, glorified him to his right hand. Yes, that work of God for us has the result that our faith and our hope are in God. These are the fruits of Christ's humiliation and exaltation. Those who walk in godly fear made possible by Christ Jesus have a glorious future awaiting them. For what happened to Jesus Christ, our head, will happen to all who are united to him by faith. We share in his resurrection and his exaltation by faith. And so with faith and with hope, we may be certain that we will withstand the refining fire of judgment and be welcomed eternally into the presence of our exalted King. We need not have a fear of dying if we rightly fear God. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, we've seen this afternoon reasons for fearful living and reasons for fearless living. And we, for our part, may not prioritize the one over the other. The Apostle Peter wants us to realize while you sojourn in this world, while you wait for the return of Christ, your conduct is supposed to be motivated by, God, by how God tells you to see him. You are to see him as, on the one hand, impartial. He will use the same standard to judge your life as the life of your neighbor. Therefore, you may not take him lightly, but live in reverence, knowing that he sees your every thought, word, and deed. For he redeemed you from, your, from emptiness, futility, with the precious blood of his only son. Reverence before God shows in obedient, holy living. And for those then who know 
and understand and cherish this kind of fearful living, you need not fear anything else. You may look forward to the day of judgment. Yes, as odd as it might sound, you may live fearlessly for that day. For Christ, our head, went before us, and so we have hope that we will follow. It's just as we confess in Lord's Day 19, question and answer 52, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake, for you, for the church, Peter says, and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation because they've never feared God. But he will take me and all his chosen ones who fear and love him up to himself into heavenly joy and glory. And so, congregation, to fear or not to fear, let it never be a question. Amen.